A few years ago, the Methodist minister Jan Richardson started noticing how the principal characters in the nativity narratives were coping with difficult and unexpected times. She was going through difficult times herself, and so she noticed this, uh, how the characters were coping with life, and so uh, Joe and Katie and I are borrowing her idea and preaching the sermon series called Advent Practices for the Shortest Days and Darkest Nights. Today we look at shepherds and wise men. First, Luke's nativity narrative. In that region there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. But the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I am bringing you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then our second gospel lesson is from the gospel according to Matthew. This is Matthew's take on the nativity narrative. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Judea. And there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. And on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they knelt down to pay him homage. And then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So as I said, we're preaching this sermon series called Advent Practices for the Shortest Days and Darkest Nights. If you are in a dark place, first, find a friend. If you are in a dark place, second, sing a song. If you are in a dark place, third, get some sleep for God's sake. And fourth, if you are in a dark place, look up at the night sky. Now, only two of the four evangelists tell us what happened when the Messiah was born, and they tell very different stories about what happened when Jesus was born, but they do agree on one central fact of the birth story, that the night sky was a very, a very important part of it. So you know, of course, that sheep herding is hours of tedious boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror when one of your lambs wanders off or a predator starts stalking the edge of your flock. So, there are these Christmas shepherds innocently minding their own business, playing penny poker around the campfire, and passing around a bottle of Jack Daniels, when suddenly the Stygian night over those Judean hills, ordinarily illumined only with the dusting of scattered stars, is suddenly ablaze with a spectral dancing fluorescence. Look up at the night sky. The membrane sometimes between this world and the next is as gauzy as the scrim on the stage of the lyric opera. You can see right through it. Same thing with the wise men. Now we don't know much about the wise men, but our best guess is that they were scientists from either Babylon or Persia. 
The Greek word Matthew uses to describe the wise men is magi. And I don't have to tell you, though I will, I don't have to tell you that that's where we get our English words magic and magical and magician. The wise men were magic men. Better yet, they were astronomers who studied the stars in order to be able to predict eclipses and to chart equinoxes and solstices to help with agriculture and to help sailors navigate their oceanic voyages. We don't know what astral phenomenon captured their lettered attention, but it must have been rare enough and portentous enough to motivate these academicians. That's what they are, right? They're professors. They have tenure. They're academics to motivate these professors to travel 600 miles of trackless desert wastes to get to Bethlehem where they think they might find a king. It took them at least a month to get there, one way. On Wednesday night, Doogie and I were walking westward down the first fairway at the Indian Hill Golf Course. It was about 6 o'clock at night, 40 degrees, cloudless sky. The air was still and crisp and immaculate. And we looked, we're facing west, we looked just to our southwest, just to our left, about halfway in the night sky. Well, I did anyway. Doogie did not comment on it. And I saw this large, bright, white disc. And right next to it, its smaller, ruddier companion, almost the color of the setting sun. Just the narrowest gap of night sky separating them. Neither was twinkling, so they couldn't have been stars. Now, unless you've been hiding a bunk in a bunker this last week, you know that what Doogie and I saw was the approach of the great conjunction of the planets Jupiter and Saturn. Jupiter, the bright white disk, and Saturn, its flame-colored little sister. On December 21, the winter solstice. How perfect is that? How poetic is that? On December 21, the winter solstice, the two planets will be so close, they'll be almost adjacent. They may even overlap a little bit like a Venn diagram. They may look a little bit like a snowman tipped on its side with a large ball and a smaller ball. Now, this hasn't happened since 1643, but in 1643, it happened too close to the sun for anybody to see it, so neither practiced astronomer nor novice stargazer has laid eyes on this phenomenon since 1226, 800 years ago. The conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. This is sometimes called the Christmas star, right? Because for centuries, astronomers and Bible scholars alike, that it might have been the phenomenon that the Magi saw in the eastern sky and then followed, so to speak, all the way to Bethlehem. There was, in fact, a great conjunction in 7 B.C. And this is very timely because, ironically, Jesus was born six or seven years B.C. Ironically, Jesus was born before Christ. Too complicated to get into just now. So maybe what the Magi saw was the great conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Or maybe they saw a comet. Or maybe they saw a supernova. Or maybe... This astral event was a legend Matthew concocted in order to make a theological point. 
But I'm making a theological point about it this morning because it meant so much to me the other night when we saw Jupiter and Saturn so close, they almost kissed the narrowest sliver of night sky between them. Because since March 12, I have been spending so much time looking down at newsprint or horizontally at screens instead of up at the night sky, and this is just not serving my health. Right? I am addicted to the news. And this addiction, like most other addictions, is not helping me thrive during this dark time. Now, I guess I have to know that bad things happen in a broken world so that I can live responsibly and preach discerningly, but I don't have to be consumed by it. Eventually, the negativity just piles up and poisons your attitude. Last Sunday morning, I was walking the dog at 6.30. I know a lot of my illustrations are about walking the dog, but that's because it's all I do except work. Last Sunday morning, I was walking the dog at 6.30, and we're up at that hour because I have to make a call about whether we're having the outdoor services before 7 o'clock. I don't want to have my staff drive in from as much as an hour away to come to church for a service that's not going to happen. So we base our call on it, uh, on the weather, of course. So 6.30, everything's fine. We're walking around the block. It's cloudy, but it's 40 degrees. Pretty good for December. It's not raining. And then 6.45, we're headed up the steps into my house, and it starts to rain. And it felt so unfair. I called off the service. You know, I know there are only about 30 of us who gather out there in the Memorial Garden every Sunday, just 30 of us, but I so look forward to seeing you, and I miss you, and it felt unfair. And I said to my wife, I just can't catch a break. I didn't quite say God is picking on me, but almost, which is really a juvenile attitude, isn't it? Because the universe doesn't exist to serve my happiness. We learned long ago, ever since Copernicus, that the solar system is helio, not geocentric. I haven't learned yet, apparently, that the solar system is not William-centric. The planets do not revolve around me. And so, looking up at the night sky can liberate you from the prison house of your own egotism from the pinched and narrow confines of your own psyche during dark times. You know, when Jupiter and Saturn come so close together with that thinnest sliver of night sky between them, that sliver is actually 400 million miles. 400 million miles across. It takes a beam of light 100,000 years to cross the Milky Way. Just our galaxy, 100,000 years, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. If you could drive a car at 70 miles an hour to the nearest star, you would eventually get there in 356 billion years. The nearest, not the farthest star, 356 billion years. Somebody guessed that there are 70 sextillion stars in the universe. 
I don't know how they came up with that number, but that's what they say. 70 sextillion. That's a seven with 22 zeros behind it. Neil deGrasse Tyson says that the 100 billion galaxies of the universe decorate the dark voids of space like cities across a country at night. They decorate the dark voids of space like cities across a country at night. I may, maybe I've told you before that I am the sole curate, curator of a little list that I keep. My list is called Underrated Films of Vast but Invisible Cultural Significance. Nobody on earth has the slightest interest in this list but me, but it makes me happy. And so on my list of underrated films of vast but invisible cultural significance, of course, A Love Actually, which I think is underrated, Big Fish, The Family Man, that masterpiece, Best in Show, Moonrise Kingdom, or almost anything by Wes Anderson. I love Galaxy Quest. My daughter thinks I am insane for loving this crazy movie but I just do. And my favorite underrated film of vast but invisible cultural significance is Joe versus the Volcano. Don't apologize if you haven't seen it. Almost nobody has. comes from 1990, but in fact, it is one of the four films that Tom Hanks shared with Meg Ryan. Tom Hanks plays Joe the titular character, and Meg Ryan stars as three different women in a tour de force performance, which I think is the finest of her career, although it is hard to beat when Harry met Sally, yes? And so Tom Hanks' character, Joe, things are not going well for Joe. First of all, he thinks he's mentally or or terminally ill. He's not, but he thinks he has mere weeks to live. And then things get worse still. If you think you have problems, go see Joe versus the Volcano. You'll feel instantly happier. It's too complicated to get into now, but Joe's sailboat shipwrecks in the South Pacific, leaving Joe stranded on a life raft for days and days without food and water. And he's delirious from hunger and thirst after days, and he's in and out of consciousness. And one night... Joe wakes from stupor under the biggest, brightest, most glorious moon you have ever seen in the cinema. It's so big you can reach right out and touch it. And Joe staggers to his feet and he lifts his hands. His haggard face is loosened in the glister of moonbeam. And then he raises his arms high and it's as if he's trying to hold the moon in his very hands. And then he prays the best movie prayer I have ever heard. Dear God, whose name I do not know, thank you. Thank you for my life. I forgot how big Thank you. And so if you find yourself in a dark place this Advent, glance up at the night sky 
you might see spectral phantoms scurrying across the night singing Gloria in Excelsis Deo. Or you might see a stellar anomaly that will lead you straight to the Christ child. Because sometimes this veil between this world and the next is just the gauziest scrim. You can see right through it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.